You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. Lecture number one of the spiritual beings in the heavenly bodies and in the kingdoms of nature. Lecture cycle by Rudolf Steiner. This lecture was given, it doesn't have the date, okay. I'm assuming it was the uh, 4th of April, first, or actually the 3rd of April, which would have been the first in the cycle. Let's see if that's true. When our friends here gave me a warm invitation to come to them, they requested me to speak about the spiritual beings we find in the realms of nature and in the heavenly bodies. Our theme will compel us to touch upon a realm that is very far removed from all the knowledge humanity is given today by the external world, the intellectual world. From the very beginning we shall have to allude to a domain whose reality is denied by the outer world today. I shall take only one thing for granted namely, that as a result of the studies you have made in spiritual science, you will meet me with a feeling and perception for the spiritual world. In respect to the manner in which we shall name things, we shall come to a mutual understanding in the course of the lectures. All the rest will, in certain respects, come of itself, when as time goes on we acquire an understanding born of feeling and of perception for the fact that behind our sense world, behind the world which we as human beings experience, there lies a world of spirit, a spiritual world. And that just as we penetrate into the physical world by regarding it not only as a great unity, but as specified into individual plants, animals, minerals, peoples, persons, so we can specify the spiritual world into different classes of individual spiritual beings. So that in spiritual science we do not really speak of a spiritual world, but of quite definite beings and forces standing behind our physical world. What then do we include in the physical world? First, let us be clear about that. As belonging to the physical world, we reckon all that we can perceive with our senses, see with our eyes, hear with our hearts. Let me read that again. As belonging to the physical world, we reckon all that we can perceive with our senses, see with our eyes, hear with our ears, all that our hands can grasp. Further, we reckon as belonging to the physical world all that we can encompass with our thoughts, insofar as these thoughts refer to external perception, to that which the physical world can say to us. In this physical world, we must also include all that we as human beings do within it. It might easily make us pause and reflect when it is said that all that we as human beings do in the physical world forms part of that world. For we must admit that when we act in the physical world, we bring down the spiritual into that world. People do not act merely according to the suggestions of physical impulses and passions, but also according to moral principles. Our conduct, our actions are influenced by morals. Certainly when we act morally, spiritual impulses play a part in our actions, but the field of action in which we act morally is nevertheless the physical world. Just as in our moral actions there is an interplay of spiritual impulses, even so do spiritual impulses permeate us through colors, sounds, warmth, and cold, and through all sense perception impressions. 
The spiritual is, in a sense, always hidden from external perception, from that which the external human being knows and can do. It is characteristic of the spiritual that we can only recognize it when we take the trouble, at least to a small extent, to become other than we have been hitherto. We work together in our groups and gatherings, and not only do we hear there certain truths that tell us that there are various worlds, that the human being consists of various principles or bodies, or whatever we like to call them, but by allowing all this to influence us, although we may not always notice it, our soul will gradually change to something different, even without our going through an esoteric development. What we learn through spiritual science makes our soul different from what it was before. Compare your feelings after you have taken part in the spiritual life of a working group for a few years, the way you feel and think, with the thoughts and feelings you had before, or with the way in which people think and feel who are not interested in spiritual science. Spiritual science does not merely signify the acquisition of knowledge. It signifies most preeminently an education, a self-education of our souls. We make ourselves different. We have other interests. When one imbues oneself with spiritual science, the habits of attention for this or that subject which one developed during previous years alter. What was once of interest is of interest no longer. What was of no interest previously now begins to be interesting in the highest degree. We ought not simply to say that only a person who has gone through esoteric development can attain to a connection with the spiritual world. Esotericism does not begin with occult development. The moment that with our whole heart we make any link with spiritual science, esotericism has already begun. Our souls begin at once to be transformed. There then begins in us something resembling what would arise, let us say, in a being who had previously only been able to see light and darkness, and who then, through a special and different organization of the eyes, begins to see colors. The whole world would appear different to such a being. We need only observe it, we need only realize it, and we shall soon see that the whole world begins to have a new aspect when we have for a time gone through the self-education we can get in a spiritual scientific circle. This self-education to a perception of what lies behind physical facts is a fruit of the spiritual scientific movement in the world and is the most important part of spiritual understanding. We should not believe that we can acquire spiritual understanding by mere sentimentality, by simply repeating continually that we wish to permeate all our feelings with love. Other people, if they are good, wish to do that too. This would only be giving way to a sort of pride. Rather, we should make it clear to ourselves how we can educate our feelings, by letting the knowledge of the facts of a higher world influence us, and by transforming our souls by means of this knowledge. This special manner of training the soul to a feeling for a higher world is what makes a spiritual scientist. Above all, we need this understanding if we intend to speak about the things that are to be spoken of in the course of these lectures. One who with trained occult vision is able to see behind the physical facts immediately finds, behind all that is spread out as color, sound, warmth and cold, behind all that is embodied in the laws of nature, beings that are not revealed to the external senses to the external intellect, but that lie behind the physical world. Then, as one penetrates further and deeper, one discovers, so to speak, worlds with beings of an ever higher order. If we wish to acquire an understanding of all that lies behind the sense world, then in accordance with the special task that has been assigned to me here, we must take as our real starting point 
what we encounter immediately behind the sense world as soon as we raise the very first veil that sense perceptions spreads over spiritual happenings. As a matter of fact, the world that reveals itself to trained occult vision as the one lying next to us presents the greatest surprise to contemporary understanding, to our present powers of comprehension. I am speaking to to those who have, to some extent, accepted spiritual science. Therefore I may take it for granted that you know that immediately behind what meets us externally as a human being, behind what we see with our eyes, touch with our hands, and grasp with our understanding in ordinary human anatomy or physiology, behind what we call the physical body, we recognize the first supersensible human principle. This supersensible principle of the human being we call the etheric or life body. Today we will not speak of still higher principles of human nature, but need only be clear that occult vision is able to see behind the physical body and to find there the etheric or life body. Now, occult vision can do something similar with regard to nature around us, just as we can investigate a human being occultly to see if there is not something more than the physical body, and then find the etheric body, so too we can look with occult vision at external nature in her colors, forms, sounds, and kingdoms, in the mineral, the plant, the animal, and the human kingdoms, insofar as these meet us physically. We then find that just as behind the human physical body there is a life body, so we can also find a sort of etheric or life body behind the whole of physical nature. Only there is an immense difference between the etheric body of all of physical nature and that of the human being. When occult vision is directed to the human etheric or life body, it is seen as a unity, as a connected structure, as a single connected form or figure. When occult vision, on the other hand, penetrates all that external nature presents as color, form, mineral, plant, or animal structures, it discovers that in physical nature the etheric body is a plurality, something infinitely multiform. That is the great difference. The human etheric or life body is a single unitary being, while there are many varied and differentiated beings behind physical nature. Now I must show you how we arrive at such an assumption as that just made, namely that behind our physical nature there is an etheric or life body, strictly speaking an etheric or life world, that is a plurality, a multiplicity of differentiated beings. To express how we can arrive at this, I can clothe it in simple words. We are more and more able to recognize the etheric or life world behind the physical nature when we begin to have a moral perception of the world lying around us. What is meant by perceiving the whole world morally? What does this imply? First of all, looking away from the earth, if we direct our gaze into the ranges of cosmic space, we are met by the blue sky. Suppose we do this on a day in which no cloud, not even the faintest silver-white cloudlet, breaks the azure space of heaven. Then we look upward into this blue heaven spread out above us, whether we recognize it in the physical sense as something real or not, does not matter. The point is the impression that this wide stretch of blue heavens makes upon us. Suppose that we can yield ourselves up to this blue of the sky, and that we do this with intensity for a long, long time. Imagine that we can do this in such a way that we forget everything else that we know in life and all that is around us. Suppose that we are able for one moment to forget all external impressions, all memories, all cares and troubles of life, 
and can yield ourselves completely to the single impression of the blue heavens. What I am now saying to you can be experienced by every human soul, if only it will fulfill these necessary conditions. What I am telling you can be a common human experience. Suppose a human soul gazes in this way at nothing but the blue of the sky. A certain moment then comes, a moment in which the blue sky ceases to be blue, in which we no longer see anything that can in human language be called blue. If at that moment when the blue ceases to be blue to us, we turn our attention to our own soul, we shall notice quite a special mood in it. The blue disappears and, as it were, an infinity arises before us. And in this infinity we experience a quite definite mood in our soul, a quite definite feeling, a quite definite perception pours itself into the emptiness which arises where the blue had been before. If we would give a name to this soul perception, to what would soar out there into infinite distances, there is only one word for it. It is a devout feeling in our soul, a feeling of pious devotion to infinity. All the religious feelings in the evolution of humanity have fundamentally a nuance that contains what I have here called pious devotion. The impression has called up a religious feeling, a moral perception. When within our souls the blue has disappeared, a moral perception of the external world springs to life. Let us now reflect upon another feeling by means of which we can, in another way, attune ourselves in moral harmony with external nature. When the trees are bursting into leaf and the meadows are filled with green, let us fix our gaze upon the green, which in a most varied manner covers the earth or meets us in the trees. And again we will do this in such a way as to forget all the external impressions that can affect our souls and simply devote ourselves to what in external nature meets us as green, if once more we are so circumstanced that we can yield ourselves to what springs forth as the reality of green, we can carry this so far that the green disappears for us in the same way that previously the blue as blue disappeared. Here again we cannot say, quote, a color is spread out before our sight, unquote, but, parenthesis, and I remark expressly that I am telling you of things that each one of us can experience for ourselves if the requisite conditions are fulfilled, parenthesis, the soul has instead a peculiar feeling that can be expressed thus, quote, Now I understand what I experience when I think creatively, when a thought springs up in me, when an idea strikes me. I understand this now for the first time. I can only learn this from the bursting forth of the green all around me. I begin to understand the inmost parts of my soul through external nature when the outer natural impression has disappeared and in its place a moral impression is left. The green of the plant tells me how I ought to feel within myself when my soul is blessed with the power to think thoughts, to cherish ideas. Unquote. Here again, an external impression of nature is transmuted into a moral feeling. Or again, we may look at a wide stretch of white snow, in the same way as in the description just given of the blue of the sky and the green of earth's robe of vegetation. So too can the white of the snow set free within us a moral feeling for all that we call the phenomenon of matter in the world. And if in contemplation of this white snow mantle we can forget everything else and experience the whiteness and then allow it to disappear, we obtain an understanding of that which fills the earth as substance, as matter. We then feel matter living and weaving in the world. 
and just as one can transform all external sight impressions into moral perceptions, so too can one transform impressions of sound into moral perceptions. Suppose we listen to a tone and then to its octave, and so attune our souls to this dual sound of a tonic note and its octave, that we forget all the rest, eliminate all the rest, and completely yield ourselves to these tones. It then comes about at last that, instead of hearing these dual tones, our attention is directed from these, and we no longer hear them. Then, again, we find that in our soul a moral feeling is set free. We begin then to have a spiritual understanding of what we experience when a wish lives within us that tries to lead us to something, and then our reason influences our wish. The concord of wish and reason, of thought and desire, all as they live in the human soul, is perceived in the tone and its octave. In like manner we might let the most varied sense perceptions work upon us. We could in this way let all that we perceive in nature through our senses disappear, as it were, so that this sense veil is removed. Then moral perceptions of sympathy and antipathy would arise everywhere. If we accustom ourselves in this way to eliminate all that we see with our eyes or hear with our ears or that our hands grasp or that our understanding, which is connected with the brain, comprehends, if we eliminate all that, and accustom ourselves nevertheless to stand before the world, then there works within us something deeper than the power of vision of our eyes, or the power of hearing of our ears, or the intellectual power of our brain thinking. We then confront a deeper being of the external world. Then the immensity of infinity so works upon us that we become imbued with a religious mood, then the green mantle of plants so works upon us that we feel and perceive in our inner being something spiritually bursting forth into bloom. Then the white robe of snow so works upon us that by it we gain an understanding of what matter, of what substance is in the world. We grasp the world through something deeper within us than we had hitherto brought into play. And therefore in this way we come into touch with something deeper in the world itself. Then, as it were, the external veil of nature is drawn aside, and we enter a world which lies behind this external veil. Just as we look behind the human physical body, we, when we look behind the human physical body, we come to the etheric or life body, so in this way we come into a region in which gradually manifold beings disclose themselves, those beings that live and work behind the mineral kingdom. The etheric world gradually appears before us, differentiated in its details. In occult science, what gradually appears before us in the way described has always been called the elemental world, and those spiritual beings we meet with there and of whom we have spoken are the elemental spirits that lie hidden behind all that constitutes the physical sense-perceptible world. I have already said that whereas the human etheric body is a unity, what we perceive as the etheric world of nature is a plurality, a multiplicity. How then can we, since what we perceive is something quite new, find it possible to describe something of what gradually impresses itself upon us from behind external nature? Well, we can do so if by way of comparison we make a connecting link with what is known. In the whole multiplicity that lies behind the physical world, we, find, we first find beings that present them, 
that present self-enclosed pictures to occult vision. Let me say that sentence again. In the whole multiplicity that lies behind the physical world, we first find beings that present self-enclosed pictures to occult vision. In order to characterize what we first of all find there, I must refer to something already known. We perceive self-enclosed pictures, beings with definite outline, of whom we can say that they can be described according to their form or shape. These beings are one class that we first of all find behind the physical sense world. A second class of beings that we find there we can only describe if we turn away from what shows itself in set form with a set figure and employ the word metamorphosis or transformation. That is the second phenomenon that presents itself to occult vision. Beings that have definite forms belong to the one class. Beings that actually change their shape every moment, who as soon as we meet them and think we have grasped them, immediately change into something else, so that we can only follow them if we make our souls mobile and receptive. Such beings belong to the second class. Occult vision actually only finds the first class of beings, those that have a quite a definite form when, parenthesis, starting from such conditions as have already been described, parenthesis, it penetrates into the depths of the earth. I have said that we must allow all that works on us in the external world to arouse a moral effect, such as has been described. We have brought forward by way of example how one can raise the blue of the heavens, the green of the plants, the whiteness of the snow into moral impressions. Let us now suppose that we penetrate into the inner part of the earth. When, let us say, we associate with miners, we reach the inner portion of the earth, at any rate we enter regions in which we cannot at first so school our eyes that our vision is transformed into a moral impression. But in our feeling we notice warmth, differentiated degrees of warmth. We must first feel the warmth. Warmth must be the physical impression of nature when we plunge into the realm of the earth. If we keep in view these differences of warmth, these alternations of temperature, and all that otherwise works on our senses because we are underground, if we allow all this to work upon us, then through thus penetrating into the inner part of the earth and feeling ourselves united with what is active there, we go through a definite experience. If we then disregard everything that produces an impression, if we exert ourselves while down there to feel nothing, not even the differences of warmth which were only for us a preparatory stage, if we try to see nothing, to hear nothing, but to let the impression so affect us that something moral issues from our soul, then there arises before our occult vision those creative nature beings who, for the occultist, are really active in everything belonging to the earth, especially in everything of the nature of metal, and who now present themselves to his imagination, to imaginative knowledge, in sharply defined forms of the most varied kind. If having, if having had an occult training and having at the same time a certain love of such things, it is especially important to have this here. We make acquaintance with miners and go down into the mines and can forget all external impressions when we are down there. We will then feel rising up before our imagination the first class, as it were, of beings that create and weave behind all that is earthy and especially in all that pertains to metals. I have not yet spoken today of how popular fairy tales and folk legends have made use of all that 
in a sense is... Let me read that again. I have not yet spoken today of how popular fairy tales and folk legends have made use of all that in a sense is actually in existence. Of all that in a sense is actually in existence. I should like first to give you the dry facts that offer themselves to occult vision. For according to the task set me, I must first go to work empirically, that is, I must give an account, first of all, of what we find in the various kingdoms of nature. This is how I understand the topic put before me. Just as in occult vision, we perceive in our imagination clearly outlined nature beings, and in this way can have before us beings with settled form, of whom we see outlines that we could sketch, so it is also possible for occult vision to have an impression of other beings standing immediately behind the veil of nature. If, let us say, on a day when the weather conditions are constantly changing, when, for instance, clouds form and rain falls, and when perhaps a mist rises from the surface of the earth, if on such a day we yield to such phenomena in the, ways al- in the way already described, so that we allow a moral feeling to take the place of a physical one, then we may again have quite a distinct experience. This is especially the case if we devote ourselves to the peculiar play of a body of water tossing in a waterfall and giving out clouds of spray, if we yield ourselves to the forming and dissolving mist and to the watery vapor filling the air and rising like smoke, or when we see the fine rain coming down or feel a slight drizzle in the air. If we feel all this morally, there appears a second class of beings to whom we can apply the word metamorphosis, transformation. As little as we can paint lightning can we draw this second class of beings. We can only note a shape present for a moment and present excuse me, we can only note a shape present for a moment, and a moment after everything is again changed. Thus there appear to us as the second class of beings, those who are always changing form for whom we can find an imaginative symbol in the changing formations of clouds. But as occultists we become acquainted in yet another way with these beings. When we observe the plants as they come forth from the earth in the spring, just when they put forth the first green shoots, not later when they are getting ready to bear fruit, the occultist perceives that the same beings that he or she discovered in the pulverizing, drifting, gathering vapors are surrounding and bathing the beings of the budding plants. So we can say that when we see the plants springing forth from the earth, we see them everywhere bathed by such ever-changing beings as these. Then occult vision feels that what weaves and hovers unseen over the buds of the plants is in some way concerned with what makes the plants push up out of the ground, draw forth from the ground. You see, ordinary physical science recognizes only the growth of the plants, knows only that the plants have an impelling power that forces them up from below. The occultist, however, recognizes more than this in the case of the blossom. The occultist recognizes around the young sprouting plant changing, transforming beings who have, as it were, been released from the surrounding space and penetrate downward. They do not like the physical principle of growth, merely pass from below upward, but come from above downward and draw forth the plants from the ground. So in spring, when the earth is robing herself in green, to the occultist it is as though nature forces descending from the universe draw forth what is within the earth, 
so that the inner part of the earth may become visible to the outer surrounding world, to the heavens. Something that is in unceasing motion hovers over the plant. It is characteristic that occult vision acquires a feeling that what floats around the plants is the same as what is present in the rarefied water, tossing itself into vapor and rain. That, let us say, is the second class of nature forces and nature beings. In the next lecture we shall pass on to the description of the third and fourth classes, which are much more interesting, and then all this will become clearer. When we set about making observations such as these, which lie so far from present human consciousness, we must always bear in mind that, quote, all that meets us is physical, but permeated by the spiritual, unquote. As we have to think of the individual human being as permeated by what appears to occult sight as the etheric body, so must we think of all that is living and weaving in the world as permeated by a multiplicity of spiritual living forces and beings. The course to be followed in our considerations shall be such that we shall first describe simply the facts that an occultly trained vision can experience in the external world, facts that are evident to us when we look into the depths of the earth or the atmosphere, into what happens in the different realms of nature and in the heavenly spaces filled by the fixed stars. And only at the end shall we gather the whole together in a kind of theoretical knowledge that is able to enlighten us as to what lies as spirit at the foundations of our physical universe and its different realms and kingdoms. End of Lecture 1